0: Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. We are delighted today to have Abigail Dodds on the broadcast. Abigail's a wife, a mother of five, graduate from the Bethlehem College and Seminary. She contributes consistently to Desiring God, has written a couple of books. We're talking today about A, and I wish you could see the way the title is done, because A is in parentheses, the letter A, A Typical Woman, Free Whole and called in Christ, and then the bread of life, savoring the all-satisfying goodness of God through the art of bread-making. We'll have to talk about gluten, Abigail. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, we're glad to have you on the broadcast. I got your book in front of me. I have not completed the whole thing, but it gives you plenty of fodder. First of all, let's talk just a little bit about bread-making because my daughter is a huge sourdough bread-lover maker. So you wrote a whole book on making bread?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's a book about Jesus, you know, the bread of life. But oh, there, there is are... that, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's the
1: main topic. But I do get eleven bread recipes in there, which is really fun for me. I also love to bake and love love making bread, so that was a really fun project.
0: Are you you rotate your grain kind of kind of person?
1: No, unfortunately. I haven't been able to get into that.
0: Years ago when bread making was a huge thing, that was sort of the penultimate was you have to rotate your grains. And I was like, I don't know what that means.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I've looked at, you know, the wheat grinders and all the different ways to do it. And I just haven't quite taken that dive yet. So we'll see. Maybe someday.
0: Well, with five kids, I suspect they go through bread pretty quickly. We sure do. (laughs) Ages of your children.
1: You know our oldest just turned 18 last week. What? Yep. You and look you ne-
0: look about 22. How can you have an 18-year-old? 18, oh. year old? 18 down a- to
1: <laughs> down to 8. Yeah, yeah, our youngest is 8.
0: Mhm. Wow. That's a busy yeah. house.
1: Yeah, we're definitely spanning some seasons.
0: <laughs> well, let's jump into this topic. We're talking in this series primarily about the challenges of being a biblical man in a culture that has certainly changed in the past few decades. You may or may not be aware of the Danvers statement and the so-called big blue book and the complementarian versus egalitarian positions and so forth. And my concern, Abigail was we're having trouble. Men are not able to be confident in their biblical masculinity. And Hannah Seymour, my executive producer, as we mapped this out, we said we really need to hear from some women who can speak to the other side of the audience about what it means for your husband or men in general to be strong in their biblical manhood. Your book is really targeting a category of women. By the way, all the information will be in show notes for those of you to pick up Abigail's books. But give us sort of a thumbnail sense of why you started this, where you were hoping to go with it, and sort of your outcomes.
1: Well, I think aside from there being a lot of confusion about what it means to be a godly man, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a godly woman. And so This was just really written to help address that with some things I was seeing right on the ground among Christian women around me who were saying things like, I don't want people to see me just as a woman. I want them to see me as a human. Or I was hearing, maybe not from my personal friends, but more broadly online and in some of the circles that I would have a lot of agreement with in terms of how we view the Bible and things, but I was hearing things like, we need to give women a platform and a voice and give them more of a place sort of in church leadership, so to speak. And so I was hearing some of these things and thinking, you know, what is going on here? Why would someone want to emphasize being human against being a woman or over against being a woman? Is there a conflict there? And just trying to understand that more. And so that's why I started writing on the topic was really to sort of Look to the scripture to say, what does God say about what it means to be made a woman? And is there some distinction between being a human and being a woman or not? And how should we be thinking about this so that we can live as godly Christian men and women? And, you know, I found that being a woman is the expression of our humanity. There is no human category apart from man and woman. That's it. Like, I don't get to be a human apart from being a woman, because that's how God created the expression of humanity in me. And you don't get to be a human apart from being a man. That's the expression of humanity that you were assigned. And so I think it's just good to recognize, like, that is what it means to be made in God's image, is male and female, so that we can sort of stop romanticizing having this equality that makes everything so flat that there are no more distinctions. There are no more differences.
0: One of the hallmarks of the complementarian vis-a-vis egalitarian, egalitarian is equal value, equal role, complementarian, generically defined equal value, distinct role. And you mentioned some of your friends talking about this identity. Where do you think they got the idea That being a woman and their identity being, we're probably talking about believers, in Christ, where do you think Mm -hmm. they started getting infiltrated with this thinking that that wasn't enough maybe or wasn't an accurate description of who they are?
1: Well, I could try and think of like the where, like what resources, what books, what people are sort of feeding them this. But I really don't think we need to look much further than the human heart because I think— There is a bentness to all of our hearts that does not want to receive what has been given as it's been given and wants to say, no, this other thing is how I want this to go. We do want to be in God's position to get to say how things are. And beyond that, there could be, I want to also take it in the best light possible, which is it could be that for some women... They've been belittled in their life in ways that were hurtful. And so when they say, I want to be treated like a human, not a woman, it could be that they're saying, I've been treated really poorly as a woman. And I would like for people to listen to my words and give them some weight or credence or respect. And so it could be that it's just simply that, that their environment has been poor and they're wishing for something different. So I want to take it in both the best light and also, in some ways, the light that assumes that we are all operating with some, a sin nature that is indwelling sin that hasn't gone away that causes us to want things that aren't always for our good. So
0: You differentiate a little bit about my identity isn't this projected image, it's who I'm made in the image of Christ. We talk a lot about Genesis chapter 127, he created man in his image, in the image of God, he created them. And the language actually in the Hebrew is quite interesting because it seems to suggest that these weren't two separate entities now, that he created them, male and female. And of course, that's the depiction of marriage we have in the front of the Bible. The last story in the Bible and all this theology and the illustration of good and bad marriage in between. So when we think about our identity tied to gender, what are your thoughts on that? Because the LGBTQAI movement, obergerfeld has challenged a lot of the not only secular thinking, but Christian thinking. And where do we get this idea that my identity is somehow tied to gender?
1: mm. Are you using gender as specific from biological sex That's that's
0: a good question because that's a broad field topic. The way gender is used typically is not accurate, Um, Mm -hmm. even the notion of talking about gender, but just for the way people hear it. Sure. So I came out of the, I mean, you're X or Y, end of the day, right? But we assign our identity as humans. Well, I'm a man, you're a woman, my wife's a woman. And Mm -hmm. so that skews our identity from the beginning, right? I'm asking, what do you think?
1: Right. So I'll try and say this and be real careful about defining what I mean by gender as we go. Good, But I think that when you're born a boy or a girl created by God, even before you're born, he knows whether you're a boy or a girl, he assigned it, it's his plan. That absolutely is our identity, that assignment. The problem is when you start to pull apart, you know, gender from biological sex, and you say, well, my self-conception of who I am is my identity, and I don't want it to be female. I want it to be something else, and that's my identity. That's where we've really gone astray. Yeah, for a Christian, for all people, when we're made male or female, I think we have a God-given sense of what we are, male or female, meaning like what we should be in some sense. However, without Christ, without his sacrifice for sin, without the new heart that he gives us and the new eyes that he gives us and the new mindset that he gives us, we can't be what we are meant to be fully as biological men and biological women. I really think Without Christ, we are left in our sins, and those manifest in masculine ways, in feminine ways, and they manifest in ways that affect how we view our sex, our gender, all those things. And so even when we're talking about being male or being female, Christ is not like apart from that way over there in the New Testament, and we're just dealing over here in Genesis. He is the key. Like, he is the thing that allows me as a woman to say, it is good that God made me a woman. I rejoice in being made a woman because he's helped me and given me a new heart and new eyes to see that all of God's ways are good. Like, even his creation, even making male and female. But without that, it's hard to embrace it and see it for the good thing that he has called it very good.
0: And you spend quite a bit of time developing that in the book about accepting who you are in Christ is a good thing. Maybe I'm just, well, I am slow sometimes. I never had any doubt that, hey, I was born a boy. I'll be a man one day. That's a good thing. (laughs) Next subject, you know. And then, of course, you come to Christ and that recalibrates, okay, what does that mean to be a believer, identify with Christ? As a man, and then the husband, then a father and a grandfather, is how you interact with that. It's very powerful, is it not, to know that God designed Abigail as a woman, Michael as a man, and I have a role and a purpose that's a good thing?
1: It gives so much meaning to life. And yet, like you said, purpose. It helps point you in a direction. And as Christians, a lot of our purpose is shared. Like Men and women have massive shared purpose in what we're doing in the Lord and in having the fruits of the Spirit and being His ambassadors in the world, all those things, shared purpose, and yet there are still very distinct purposes that we can't interchange. So There is no... Let's talk about some
0: of those because, you know, historically when we, Cindy and I did the family life marriage conferences for 15 plus years, we had a chart about the distinctives of men and women. Mm. That's very controversial today. What's (laughs) Abigail think some of these distinctions are?
1: Well, I mean, we can start with the most basic biological ones, which is women have the potential to give birth, to be mothers, daughters, sisters, wives, all those things that It is just impossible for a man to be. And then vice versa to that with men versus women. I cannot be a father to anyone. I can't. And the world needs fathers. So that's a big pickle for a woman. That means she needs men. So if you want to not need men, good luck. That's a school of hard knocks because we do need men. (laughs) And we need good fathers. And we need good husbands. And we need men who are going to be willing to actually be men. So I think a lot of the distinctions, they originate in the bodies that we've been given, and then there are theological implications for that in the church as well when it comes to things like men being pastors, men being in leadership in the church and in the home. But I think it's interesting that those things do sort of have a root or a basis even in our bodies, because men do have more muscle mass, their shoulders are broader. And I think there's a a metaphor for that then in how God wants men to act and serve in the world. Like if you have broad shoulders, and if you have larger muscle mass, there are implications to that for how we conduct ourselves in the world, and the protection that you can provide. And all those different things. And so I think it's good to acknowledge, though, that there's a corollary to our bodies that is worked out theologically and that God then makes very explicit, you know, in the epistles especially, about how he wants his church to run.
0: One of our friends, Janet Parshall, tells a story of debating a prominent primetime newscaster, and she said, I'm all for a quality of pay and a quality of roles. And I'm all for that in the marketplace. And she said, but if I'm on an 18th story building and a fire's going on, I don't want a hundred pound woman trying to carry me out. I want a big six foot three, you know, 250 pound muscle bound fireman getting me out of the building. And they cut her off basically. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like well, that logic, but it, yeah. it, anyway, I want to go back to Paul talks in language of nourishment, maternal, caring, which I've Mm -hmm. always found striking, who most, well, most, some feminists and Christian feminists, quote-unquote, will call Paul a misogynist, a woman hater. They'll damn him for the time and the culture he wrote. His language is maternal. He's right. caring. He's, so even the Apostle Paul, who arguably we think was never married, is very in tune to this differentiation in the first century.
1: Right. And one of the main qualifications for being one of God's leaders in the church, one of the under-shepherds, is gentleness. You know, it's listed explicitly. You have to be gentle with the flock that you serve among. And so, yeah, I mean, there are really good, good, things that God has woven into what it means to be a leader that is not like a domineering sort of rough and gruff, hyper machismo type thing. That's not what God is outlining for us. It is strength under control. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth. And that's the picture. And that's really the picture of Christ, who was the meekest man to ever walk the earth. He had the command of hundreds of thousands of angels. He is the all-powerful God, and yet strength under control, You know, silent in the face of his accusers. He came to serve, not to be served. And some of those things are distinctive to him, and not all men are going to imitate each of those things, but it is a picture of the high call of what it means to be a man, strength under control.
0: And at the same time, we have him, interestingly, only with his enemies and religious leaders very in their face with scribes and Pharisees, Mm -hmm. very willing to call them out turntables and righteous anger. So we have this meek Savior in the sense of careful, not wimpy, but also very willing to get in their face, so to speak, when they were egregious. Talk a little bit about some of the things you've been surprised with your book? Because when you put yourself out there and you say the things you just said, like men are stronger, men should be leaders, men should be pastors, you're going to get some pushback.
1: Yeah, you know, I have gotten pushback. Um, It does make people mad sometimes. But by and large, I think there are, in the community of believers who are coming to the word in good faith, and who want to obey God like they do, Mm. but maybe they they're having trouble understanding some things. We live in a confusing time. What I have mostly found is that I hear from women and sometimes men who are just thankful to have someone articulating it and saying it out loud. I think it gives other people courage when they hear fellow Christians speak with courage and speak without apologizing for the Bible but who just embrace it and see the beauty in it. I don't try and make my words sound palatable to the world. I try and make my words be, first of all, pleasing before God so that when I stand to meet him on the judgment, I am not ashamed. (laughs) But beyond that, also seek to strengthen strengthen the arms and legs of fellow believers so that they too can say, oh, I she articulated that. That is how I have felt about it. I'm glad someone put words to it and I want to keep living in the way that God says and what the Bible shows and all those things. So I have heard some negative things, but I would want to emphasize the fact that there are a lot of Christians out there who really would love to hear more Christians speak plainly and courageously about what's in God's word.
0: If someone didn't know you and Todd and they were watching you in the kitchen, maybe you have a big island and you have five kids and it's a little bit crazy and you're getting dinner ready or it's morning and you're trying to get out the door, what would they see the way you and Todd interact?
1: Yeah, well, it's Tom, just so you know. Forgive me. I apologize. Forgive me. No problem at all. You know, I think they would see that Tom is a great leader of our family in that he makes things sort of run smoothly. He is very involved in our family. Like I know there are some situations where it's kind of mom and the kids doing their thing and dad is sort of intermittently knows what's going on. But when it comes to our home, he works from home a lot and he's aware of kind of the rhythms of our home and he's the one who's in charge of it. Now that said, I am definitely not just sitting there waiting for some instruction. (laughs) We have a very, I guess you could say, confident family group. And so we are all very free and speaking out, and we have robust conversations and discussions all the time. And it's just a very lively, active situation. But, you know, there are also some clear distinctions about Who's in charge, I guess you could say.
0: So, my wife wrote a book called Dancing with the One You Loved, and it was really about biblical submission in non traditional situations. For example, if you have a man who's in the military and he's deployed six, nine months, mm. and mom's at home, you have a man who's very ill, you have a man who maybe is not a believer, you have a woman who is a very powerful successful in her sphere, and the husband might be a little bit of a behind-the-scenes person. So she looked at it from just, you know, it's paint-by-numbers, yeah, the husband's the head, these type of language we use. And it was very enlightening because all these uh, relationships, they will say, yeah, he's the head of the home, but if you knew Cindy, Cindy's a very strong woman, my wife. She's got a lot of opinions, and I would be a fool to ever say, I'm the head of the home. (laughs) In the sense that, you know, it's the way it goes. So you made the comment, he's in charge. So someone would well, wait a minute. You mean you don't have an opinion, Abigail? You don't tell him what you think? There's got to be some head button once in a while, right?
1: What's funny is that I am probably very much like Cindy in that I am a very opinionated person. And I don't feel that there are restraints put on me in that realm. Like, when I say he's in charge, what I mean is, He's the buck stopper. Like he.
0: Okay, let me it, interrupt it, you. Let me interrupt you. Mm-hmm. How many times in the past ten arguments did he say, "Okay, Abigail, you're right, I'm wrong"?
1: <laughs> well, you know, ours don't really go quite like that. I, I don't know. I think we both actually do that pretty regularly. Well, that's good. Where we'll say, "Oh, I think I see your point. I'm going to back up."
0: So he'll do that. Oh sure. Okay.
1: Yeah. But that doesn't mean that he's not the buck stopper that, right. he, that he could see he's wrong about something. <laughs> I can I just, just em- imagine
0: my audience hearing that going, Okay, she's this little wallflower, lovely little sweet woman and he runs the <laughs> home. And what I want people to hear is You're a human. You have arguments. You said robust conversation. I translate that. You argue sometimes. That's okay. Cindy and I argue sometimes.
1: (laughs) Well, I just mean our whole family is full of dialogue and differing opinions, and that's part of like just the sharpening of all of us. That's how you learn. You know, right? Yeah, right.
0: Your kids have got to see mom and dad struggle with some things to figure out. Hey, Mm -hmm. mom and dad. I mean, my oldest daughter, who's you know on the other side of the glass, she she watched us through thick and thin. You know, she said, this is how mom and dad figured things out. Sometimes dad was Mm -hmm. right. Sometimes dad was wrong, et cetera. I'm digressing. Just trying to have a little fun. Let's come back to the idea of toxic masculinity and this feminism thing that is, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a, they're big topics, but on the one hand, we must acknowledge there have been overbearing men who have been abusive physically, verbally, sexually fill in the blank. I am one. Quick to point out, there have been a lot of mistakes in the past. I would estimate that's probably not talked a lot about in most churches. And at the same time, you know, it's not like everything is that problem. It's not all due to those toxic masculinity. On the other side of the scale, toxic feminism can be maybe it's not as violent and abusive physically, certainly, but it has caused damage. Yeah. So respond to those a little bit.
1: Well, right. And with the femininity, it isn't the brute force. It's usually more manipulation, which can be just as controlling. But I think, yes, of course, men are sinners and so are women. This is one of the foundational things that we have to wrestle with about what happened to humanity in the garden. And there are men who abuse women, of course, and that will probably be the case until Jesus comes back. And there are women who manipulate and sin against men, and that will be the case until Jesus comes back. I think a lot of times what I hear is something like this, that because 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, pick your historical era, pre-modern era, People will say, well, women were very mistreated and devalued. And so we needed feminism to help get women the support they need, the legal representation, the right to vote, all these different things. And while I can agree that there were problems with how women were treated, I can't agree that. The feminist way of fixing those problems was the best way. And I think what has happened is because we've taken that route that they set us on, we're experiencing sort of equal and opposite problems on the other side of it. It's like that pendulum issue. So I think that feminists wanted a world where women were equal and interchangeable with men. And they did not think through what might happen if men wanted to be equal and interchangeable with women. And that gets us to the trans movement that we're in. But I just think there was not a whole lot of forethought about the fact that if you use men as the standard by which women now must um, operate under. So if you want equality where to be successful for a woman means she has to compete with men. When that gets flipped, it ends up actually abusing women more. (laughs) So I think these are just the problems that we're dealing with from that ideological base of where we started with feminism, which didn't acknowledge marriage as a God-given good and didn't acknowledge the distinctions as good, but really were reacting, and I would say overreacting, to mm. some true wrongs that they saw.
0: Recent tweet from you reminder God's commands are not burdensome. Even the ones directed to women, therefore, are good. And when we obey them, we're better off in every way. When folks treat God's commands as burdensome for women, and I would put in there men as well, they either don't know the command giver or have never tried obeying.
1: You see that right in the garden with Eve. So one of the things that happened there as the serpent comes to Eve and is tempting her to take the fruit that God has said, don't eat that fruit, is that she, in that moment, is being tempted by the serpent to believe that God is not good. So that's why I said you either don't know the command giver, because if you knew the command giver, you would know that all his works and all his ways are good. And so when he says, don't do that, don't do that thing. You trust, even if you can't logically work it out yourself in the moment, you trust that is coming from my good father. So I'm just going to trust that that's for my good. Even if in that moment, I'm not totally sure why. And I've used this analogy before, like when I tell my kids or my eight-year-old son who's got special needs, when I tell him, hey, Titus, do not go on the grass today in our yard. And he's thinking, why not? Like, it looks great. It's green. We have a big yard. It would be fun. And I'm telling him, don't do it. He doesn't understand why, but he knows it's coming from me. I'm his mom. I love him. He knows he's supposed to obey me. That's reason enough. Because he doesn't understand, he's got special needs. There's many reasons he doesn't understand that the lawn guys came through early in the morning before we were awake and sprayed poison all over that grass. And they said, don't walk on it for 24 hours. So I'm enforcing that. He doesn't get it, but he needs to not do it. Even if he doesn't fully understand it because it's coming from his mother who loves him and who's been put in authority over him. And similarly with Eve, she is tempted then to question God. Like, he's telling me not to eat this. But the serpent's saying it in such a way as to cast doubt on God's character. Like, he's withholding something from you. Like, if you eat it, good things are going to happen. You're going to be like God. You know, and so she succumbs to that lie, to that temptation. And it's actually on that basis of her having been deceived that God then says through Paul, this is why I actually want men to be the teachers in the church and not the women. That's a hard truth for a lot of women to hear. But if you can put it back in the frame of reference of Eve in the garden, she may not have fully understood it, but she was obligated to obey. And she did have God's clear words, don't eat this. And if we're being told, don't teach or exercise authority over men in the church, Don't be the pastors. And we think, I think God's withholding from me. I'm going to question his character. I think that these people are denying me my gifts, my giftings. I think I could be much better if I did that than if I didn't. Just like Eve thought, if I do this, I'm going to be like God. I think we need to remember what happened to Eve and to slow down and remember who our command giver is. He is a good, good God You may not fully understand all the nuances of why the rule is there, but we must tremble at his word. We must trust that it is for our good. And what I have discovered is the more I'm willing to lay aside my objections and obey God and trust his word, his commands start to make sense to me. They start to become beautiful to me. I want to obey them more because I see good things because of the obedience. So
0: let's envision you're talking to a bunch of young moms, maybe newlyweds and they're thinking about having kids. They have not had, they perhaps a good background. They haven't maybe been in a solid church. Maybe they're not really in the scripture that often, but you know, they love God and they want to grow and they want to be a a good wife, good mom, good whatever. Let's just say their baseline is different than yours. They didn't grow up Mm -hmm. in a church. They didn't grow up with some foundations. Mm -hmm. They haven't gone to seminary. Where would you start?
1: The place that all of us always have to start, which is just start reading God's word every day. Actually, one of the Analogies that I talk about in the other book, the Bread of Life book, is just that the Bible, God's words, are compared to food. They're like our food as Christians. So if we aren't eating the food of God's word, we actually wither up and we get really sickly and eventually we can starve. We need the food of God's word to sustain us in our Christian life and in our Christian walk. Not only that, to show us the way. His word is a light to our feet. It's our lamp. It shows us the way that we're supposed to walk. And so, the very, very first thing I would want to tell any baby Christian, young woman, older Christian, old woman, any Christian or non Christian start eating God's word every day. Just turn it into a habit. You don't have to like check any boxes. You can just get a bookmark or tear a sheet of paper, start in Genesis, read some, put your bookmark in, pick it up the next day, open it up, read some. And you know what? There are going to be days where you read it and you're like, that was food. I didn't taste anything. I have no insights to walk away with. It didn't feel special at all. I'm not glowing like coming down from the mountain. That was just boring and I would say you know what that's okay because sometimes I can't tell you what I ate for lunch it was like a leftover meal from the night before and it was super lame but it was in the fridge so I ate it and I can't even remember what it was that's okay guess what I'm still walking around because I nourished my body that nourishment of God's word works in us good things even when we can't tell even when we don't remember what we ate, so to speak, I just would want to make an impassioned plea to just start reading the Word. Just read it every day. It will be the most important thing that you can do in your Christian life. There's nothing more important than that.
0: One of my good friends, Scott Lindsay, who works with Logos, or now known as Faith Life Bible, the Logos Bible Software Program that I'm addicted to. But he often uses the illustration of a study that was done a few years ago now, where if you read the Bible one time a week, there's no effective change. Twice a week, no effective change. Three times a week, no effective change. Four times a week, there starts to be a little bit of a change. There's less anxiety, less worry, five and six and seven times, obviously. And it is striking. It's simple. It's right. Start at the beginning. And I'm of the mindset, and my listeners know this, I love technology. I have every device you can possibly have, but this is not the way to study the Bible. And I find a striking with younger generations in particular, they're not accustomed to a book, a Bible, a pen, a bookmark. It's more, you know, technology. I'm off in the weeds here, but I appreciate Mm -hmm. your emphasis on that. And obviously it's the first step. After they get a routine in exposing themselves to the truth of God, feeding on God's Word, as you say, what's next? What are some basic things they need as a young woman who may or may not know the Scripture well, may or may not know what a Christian home is supposed to look like? Where do you send them next?
1: You need to go to the local church, and you need to find older women in your life who can bring you under their wing, who can act as a spiritual mother, And hopefully, there will be more than one because it can be a big burden for one older woman to feel like she needs to fill all the needs of a younger woman. But you take what you can get. Older women aren't perfect. So don't have your expectations. I appreciate you saying that.
0: Cindy and I have mentored couples for decades. And we often say, look, we're not the only couple you need mentoring you. You need other voices in your life because there's certain people that can give you a thing Maybe it's budgeting, maybe it's parenting, maybe it's teen years, but you may not be fortunate to find one couple or one mom who can (laughs) react. Exactly.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's so true. But that local church piece is essential as well. And come under the preaching and teaching of God's word. So be in church on Sundays, show up, you know, find somebody to sit by, become part of the family of God. And be accountable to the family of God and let them be accountable to you, too. You have some things to offer that God is going to work in you to contribute to the needs there. They need you and you need them. So just remembering that that's God's design for us is to be part of that family. We need each other. We really do.
0: Now, you address this in your book about women congregating with other women. And when Cindy and I were early married and we'd go to someone invite us over before we had kids, the women would typically be in the kitchen and the guys would be around the TV or the fireplace or whatever. And that always bugged Cindy. And she was like, we need to be in the same room together. And so, you know, we're almost 42 years married now and it's been comical even to this day hosting countless functions in our home over the decades is the way this still happens. And we kind of find each other out, if you will. And she gets upset with me if I go off without her, <laughs> even after 40 years of marriage. But why is this important to you? Why are you bringing this up?
1: You mean just whether or not women sort of spend all their time together? Right, that they congregate around
0: other women. and right. Yeah.
1: Well, part of it is just a totally natural thing that happens because of our commonalities.
0: I mean, I but like I do- bread, but I'm not going to really hang around you and ask <laughs> about bread recipes, Abigail. No offense. <laughs>
1: Well, that's true, but there are some men who do. Well, that's
0: fine. That's there. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yep. 31 Um, flavors
0: for a reason. Yeah.
1: That's right. That's right. I just think, well, here's one thing. Sometimes when we only congregate with people who are just like us, so if the only exposure I have to the community of God, the family of God, is with people who are in the exact stage and the exact life circumstance that I am in, it actually multiplies our blind spots and we don't know it. Hmm. So more even than just the man and woman kind of cross-pollinating in terms of conversations or whatever when you're gathering, I think just cross-pollinating with people who aren't always in your same season or life circumstance or stage of life can be very important. But I wouldn't feel bad if, and I think it's very there's something fitting about women congregating together in the sense that older women can teach younger women very organically, very naturally. They're going to feel free to talk about some things they wouldn't feel free to talk about if the men were in the room, and that's necessary and right. And then also, we do want to, as a larger body, you know, for men to treat younger women as sisters and older women as mothers, and that implies family relationship. And so, you know, we want to be exposed to all the different parts of God's body in a way that we are having true, authentic, family-type relationships with one another.
0: When I was at the Moody Bible Institute, my predecessor Joe Stoll had established what they called a bro-sis system, and a little bit of a old name, but the idea was the men and women's dorms sat at a table with equal number of men and women because he said, you need to understand how to have a non-sexual relationship with the opposite sex in a brother-sisterhood environment and encourage one another. And it was pretty cool because it was downtown Chicago. So you're going to walk maybe a mile, mile and a half to a grocery store or to run errands. You don't need to go out there as a single or two or three girls. And the idea was three guys and three girls going together. And mm-hmm. I thought it was wonderful. And I got to witness the fruits of that with some of these people that have just good friendships as believers years later with their bro sis group. And I thought that was such a great example of where the church could learn a lot about a healthy dynamic, whether you're single or married, Cindy and I have always pursued other couples because we always are on the learning side, either up or down, you know, whether it's from younger couples or older couples. But I think that, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, our spheres are different, but I think a lot of younger people are a little reticent to take initiative, to reach out to pursue others. Or if the dynamic is real different, well, I have nothing in common with that older person and equally older couples. I have nothing in common with this couple where he's got a man bun and, you know, she works full time and they don't have children yet.
1: Right. I do think that's true. And I see that even in our own lives where it's easy to get locked into that whatever life stage you're in. Those are the only people that you're really interacting with regularly. So remembering to learn from people who are ahead of you and be willing to invest in people who are behind you, not just meaning at a different life stage than you. So, yeah, I just think that's one of those things where, especially in the society that we're in right now with texting and smartphones and a lot of isolation especially we're going to need to press into those person-to-person relationships.
0: Final thoughts on this whole challenge we have of biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, the challenges we face with the culture. It certainly doesn't help or foster a good framework for how we live as men and women in Christ. How would Abigail kind of put a bow on that?
1: Well, I think the bow is to remember that, yes, we live in a world fallen with sin. And so that is something that we can't ignore or pretend isn't there. And yet only the church, only the church who loves God's word, who loves the Bible, has a word of hope to offer on this. And the word of hope comes both in God's creation and in his new creation, because in his creation, when he created them male and female, he didn't say, eh, that was a bummer. Or, whoops, I guess I messed up there. He created them and he called them very good. And it is only the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, that can look at what God has done in male and female and say to young, troubled youths who aren't sure whether they should be a man or a woman, who think that it's up to them to figure it out and decide, we have such hope to offer them. We can look at them and say, it is not an accident that you were given that body. It is not something that you need to have mutilated or surgically altered. It is very good. And even more so than that, there's more good news that the sins that we wrestle with, the tension that exists at times between men and women because of the fall, all of it, all of it is solved, only one place, and that's in Christ. And he can make you not just a creation, he can give you a new heart and make you a new creation. And that's where we find hope to go forward into the life to come. So he's our hope now and in the life to come
0: abigail dodd the book is called atypical woman free Hole and called in christ it's a crossway publication our good friends at crossway have continued to give us great authors to interview on in context all the information about her book and books you'll find in the show notes below abigail thanks for being on the broadcast blessings on you and tom I hope your week goes well and keep corralling those five kidlins <laughs> i sure
1: will thanks so much for having me you bet Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.